0: Welcome to another episode of the Unintended Receiver podcast by 9to1 Ultimate. Uh, today, we have a very special guest, Manisha Daryani. Uh, we're actually making this a vidcast, just like the AUDL episode. We also have two new uh, guest hosts, um, Samedha Kanpal and Nandan. Um, I'll just tell you a little bit about them, and then Manisha, and then we'll get into the episode. So, Sameda uh, is a very good friend of mine. We've known each other for years. She started playing ultimate frisbee in Ahmedabad around 2009. Um, she has also played in Chennai and also played in now plays in Bangalore. She is a UPI executive board member, sits on the National Federation for India, um, also a state for Karnataka board member, uh, active player with air traffic control. And she has two guinea pigs. And uh, she is, uh, has a significant coaching background as well. Three guinea pigs. Yeah. Um, that's actually very important. <laughs> um, has a kind of really good background in coaching. And um, I think it's going to be like a great addition, great guest uh, host today for us. Uh, Sumedha, do you want to talk about Nandan?
1: Also, just adding in, I started playing in 2011. Oh. <laughs> Uh, Nanan has been playing for the last uh, six years, and uh, he's the first coach at JIRS, which is a school on the outside of Bangalore. He then moved on to Chennai and has been coaching and playing with the Blitz for the last few years. Uh, He's also been the assistant coach for the Mixed Masters team that went to uh, Japan in 2019 for the Asia Oceanic Beach Championship. And if the world championship in Australia would not have been canceled, be head coach for the men's master's team there for India. Uh, yeah, that's coach Nandan. Is you.
0: Anything you want to add or disclaimer, Nandan? No,
1: that's about it. That's a
0: great introduction. Thank Fantastic. you very
2: much.
3: I'm just disappointed you don't have guinea pigs. I'll be
0: honest. <laughs> oh yeah. He has a dog. He has dog or dogs, plural. Yeah.
3: I have, yeah, I have mom, a dog, too. Yeah. OK, this on. is
0: great. <laughs> I feel left out now. I don't have any pets. <laughs> uh, OK, I'm going to get to Manisha. Um, your background is incredibly impressive. I tried to string this together and make it as succinct as possible. But I think I'm just going to lay out everything. So and do correct me at the end uh, for anything I've messed up. But started playing Ultimate Frisbee in 2002 after being in softball, kind of into softball at the University of San Diego. You met the national champions on the bus, kind of going somewhere, and they got you hooked onto Ultimate or asked you to join. Um, you were part of a really good college program there. You went to college nationals that year, I think, made the quarterfinals, and then in 2003 made the semifinals. finals. Uh, that video is online, I've heard. Um, there was a model there, this kind of club team taught the college team. Um, Fast forwarding a bit, having started in 2002, you then um, in your career, you've been to Club Nationals seventeen times in a row. Is uh, I think that's right. Like that's phenomenal. You were part of Fury, one of probably the most famous women's teams in the world uh, till two thousand sixteen. Then you joined the mixed division. Uh, kind of going back a bit. Um, by two thousand ten, you'd won three nationals and one worlds. I think in two thousand twelve, um, Japan won against USA, so it was a close one. You'd visited uh, Colombia in 2011, uh, met the Cardenas sisters when they were just there when they were 11 years old, which I I think is just a really amazing, like, tidbit fact. So that's kind of your playing career and uh, coaching and leadership. um, We talk about that. Kind of moved to high school for coaching in 2012, and you still do that. You started a youth organization, um, started to get involved in professional ultimate with two leagues the, the Western Ultimate League most predominantly and then also a little bit with the premier ultimate league um now you're president of that and you have you you own a team in the bay area that's phenomenal Uh, you're part of the working sotg group for usa ultimate Um, the bay area disc association board member i think until 2018 and then retired you had a big influence on their youth program and that's amazing and you also helped establish and worked with an ngo Called Downtown Brown, which is a majority minority team, uh, creating a space for ultimate players of color. And you're a lawyer, and that—that's—that's that's all I've got.
3: <laughs> Usually, the mic drop is the lawyer, and you're a lawyer. Mic and drop. You're like, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, I was <laughs> like, wow. To top it all off, you're like conquering the legal world as well. But yeah, did I miss anything, or did I embellish anything wrongly?
3: Uh, no it's weird to ask did I embellish um <laughs>
0: did I embellish <laughs> no <that's really> <laughs> uh
3: no I I you know I did start my career at UC San Diego so University of California San Diego and uh and you're correct uh, I was very fortunate to to immediately kind of move into the club pipeline um which led to a pretty phenomenal career and a number of titles and 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 a career that I recognize is is rather envious for many people and I've been very, very fortunate, above all else, to be able to represent Team USA on multiple occasions. I'm repping one of my Team USA jerseys right now. Um, And I'm thrilled to be here. I'm I'm really just thrilled that you thought to reach out and and ask if I was interested in chatting with you all. And I'm ecstatic. I'm ecstatic because I've watched India continue to grow in this sphere, in this space. Uh, I've seen the success of these teams and it is disappointing to hear that 2020 didn't happen. Hmm. Um, It's exciting to think about what happens in 2022 when there's about seven, six world events on the calendar and how many will India show up at? Um, I'm excited, my hope is it'll be all six. Um, And so I'm just thrilled to be here. I'm excited to, as someone who obviously identifies both as Indian and as American, you know this is an aspect of my identity that, that I don't get to ignore and or I don't want to ignore and so it's a really wonderful opportunity to talk to folks who are in the homeland trying to build this sport out and, and continue to succeed and, and strive for the same excellence that we see here in the in the United States and in the rest of the world
0: fantastic yep feeling is is mutual 100%
1: so starting with the big question what motivated you to pioneer the W.L. like Tell us a little about how you reached that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I know
3: during the intro, we talked about the PUL. And so kind of give a background. Um, right now in the United States, there are two women, female, non-binary focused leagues. Uh, Premier Ultimate League, which launched in uh, 2018. And then the WL, which technically launched in 2020, but unfortunately COVID. Um, my involvement is right now primarily with the WUL. Uh, as much as we have the PUL as a sister organization, we are operating separately primarily because the United States is huge geographically. And uh, just the sheer size of it, I think, has been a really boon for us to try and think regionally rather than having to uh, tackle a very large problem nationally off the bat. Um, and you know, I, I loved getting this question because it really focused on my background. Um, you know, I am an Indian American, I'm, I'm first generation. I think that's the role when you're born here or maybe you're second, I'm not quite sure. But I was raised by immigrant parents. Um, my, my mom is from India, my dad is from Pakistan and uh, I was born here in the United States. And, and though we were here in the United States, I have grown up in a rather traditional household. And in my household, girls did not play sports. They still don't play sports in my household and I've been playing for almost 20 years. Um, and, and to grow up in that environment, uh, I think obviously influenced why I choose now to give back to this sport because trying to convince traditional parents who find gender norms, very concrete, that a woman's place can be on the field instead of just at home, um, was difficult without role models. It was difficult to do without an example. Because at that point you were just sort of the outlier and you were the exemption, you were the black sheep. I always called myself the black sheep of the family um, because I wasn't conforming to, and I'm not saying it's antiquated, I'm just saying it's what they knew, the expectations that they knew. Mm. And for us to be able to challenge that narrative, we need to create that space. We need to normalize this space. And I absolutely think growing up as, as as a multicultural immigrant, is exactly why I fell into this sphere today, Mm. because it made it that much more obvious that what is the power of being able to create the role model? You cannot be what you cannot see, right? That's what we hear all the time. You cannot be what you cannot see. And, And to me, it matters that we start to create a model where women are valued as athletes, valued in their professionalism, and being told, you can be paid to do this. This norm does not exist right now in the United States. We are struggling even in the United States to create this narrative. You are seeing organizations like the WNBA, you're seeing the WS, um, National Soccer League also trying to challenge this narrative that sports is not the province of men. Sports is the province of people and people can be great at this sport. And I am so excited to be in a space and have the opportunity, have the privilege to be able to, to continue that narrative moving forward and to create that narrative because that's the reality of it. We are creating the narrative. We are going where right now, many people have not been able to and if I can do something so that one other little girl can go to their parents and say, I wanna play sports and your parents can look at it and say, I know what you're talking about. It's normalized now, it's okay. That matters so much to me and I want that. I want that for every young girl, immigrant girl in particular, who is struggling with this, mm. of this, of this, can I do this? Can I be both? It's not an either or. I think you can be both. Um, and so I, I'm just, I'm ecstatic at the work we're doing. I'm excited that we're gonna be able to come out of, ideally come out of COVID in the next couple months, who knows at this point, point? Um, and perhaps bring an incredible product that, as consumers, and as athletes, we are excited about.
0: Nice. It's so great to hear like the passion in your voice. I think that, that answers the question also, right? Like You're just so motivated and so driven and um, have this vision that you really believe in based on your coaching experience as well. It's awesome. It's really nice.
3: Yeah, I mean, coaching is such a wonderful thing, right? We, we truly get to influence the lives of athletes in ways that, actually affect their regular lives. You know, the skill sets that you bring, especially in the context of ultimate where it's self-officiated mm. in terms of um, conflict management, uh, in terms of how we interact with people, in terms of how we treat people. I mean, these are life skills that we're treating. It's, it's one of the things I would always argue with my parents about. I was like, I am learning more about what it means to be a good person than I would ever learn by just being in an office. I learned more about what does it mean to interact and treat people well than just sitting at home. Like these are the skills we teach and, and they're so transferable to every aspect of our life. I mean, you hear this all the time, elite athletes tell you like, what I learned from sports is head and shoulders about what I learned in a classroom, right? Cause it taught us real life skills. It taught us what does it mean to, to be ahead and still look back and say, are you coming? What does it mean when you're behind and wanting to get that drive to keep going? Like the agony of defeat, like the, the thrill of victory, the ego that comes with being on top, the humility that comes with being at the bottom. These are life skills, and they're absolutely transferable.
1: I think what you have just said connects very well to what we have to ask the second question. Um, Uh, when you are addressing issues like people's uh, basic life skills and how you be with each other in a team or interact with people um, as a coach you have a greater responsibility of uh, transferring that to people and uh, next question that I want to ask you is um, as a coach also as an athlete how do you start to address? people's notion of we are past issues that affect smaller groups of people? You know, when people say, oh yeah, that's a thing, but we're not there anymore. Uh, how do we move beyond that notion of we're over it to do with gender or race or any other factors that don't affect the majority, that that are only relevant to a small group of people?
3: Um, I loved this question. It forced me to actually have to think, and I, I came up with an analogy. Um, you know, as an athlete, um, we're told to get better, we practice. And especially with the Olympics happening right now, you see elite athletes continuing to practice. At no point does an elite athlete turn to you and say, I've got it. I don't need to do this anymore. I think it's the same is true with how we treat each other. I think the same is true with the isms, the racisms, the sex isms, the, the gender isms, you know. The, the same is absolutely true. Whether, you are a, a, whether you're whether Yo-Yo Ma, or whether you're Michael Phelps or Serena Williams, they will always tell you, we can improve. There is no point where they say, I've reached the top and I am done. And I do think that that's true in how we treat each other and how we learn to interact with one another. There is no point where you've actually accomplished the goal. You don't get to put the flag on the top and say, we're done. That's not how it works. It's not how it works for elite athletes. And it's certainly not how it works with how we treat each other. Um, And I think that any elite athlete who suggests that we're not (laughs) that I don't have to deal with this doesn't quite understand the very same mentality that they need for greatness on the field, because their ability to succeed on the field is just as important as how they treat each other off the field. And they're so intertwined, and you cannot have success without the one without the other. So um, I. Uh, It it is funny to to, to ask this question, you know, the United States, obviously, is quite a a different experience where this very strange melting pot of like ingredients that sometimes feel like oil and water, and in some ways are creating this phenomenally wonderful different experience, you know, that we are dealing with people who are immigrants, those whose uh, English is not their first language, uh, those who truly have the right to claim this land is theirs. Um, You know, um, those Europeans who at one point were defined as white and then later not defined as white, the definition is constantly changing. And I think it's a misnomer to feel like this is static. It has never been static. Even our conversations on gender right now are evolving. And I think it's wonderful that it's evolving. I was at a tournament last weekend and I had a, a teammate rightfully call me out when I used he, she pronouns. And they said, you know what? It'd be great if you said they. And I love that I got called out on that because it's important we do that because the only way we continue this conversation forward is being okay with being called out on instances where we can actually make spaces more inclusive, we can make spaces feel more welcome and we can make spaces feel more like we want it to feel where everyone feels like it's a part of what they want to be and not something that I'm conforming to. And that's really what we've been trying to deal with is that so much of here in the United States, we've had to conform to a narrative We've had to conform to an identity, and the the pushback has been, maybe that's not the best course forward. It would be nice to be able to say, we don't have to meet at you, maybe we meet in the middle, and I think we can. I really do believe we can, and maybe that's naive, but I genuinely believe we can actually meet in the middle.
2: Yeah, I I agree. I think the uh, work is um, ongoing for the most part. I think uh, it gets better. We all uh, once we understand how we uh, interact with each other, we talk. It gets better, but I think it's an ongoing process, and this this definitely going to be something to work on and constantly improve uh, along the way. Do agree with that? Uh, so moving on, uh, I I remember you mentioned uh, about how ultimate is uh, uh, ultimate and sport at large has provided a platform to uh, learn so much more than just uh, technical skill, uh, get fit, and get uh, better on field. And it, it translates to a lot of things that we do off field as well. And one such thing that we see in Ultimate is uh, spirit, which gives us a lot a lot to work with and uh, makes uh, communication better, and we are more honest and fair. And the way we uh, deal with differing opinions is, uh, uh, address, right? So I was just wondering, are there, do you find any differences between spirit across divisions, men's, women's, and mix? If so, are there any things that one division could probably learn from the others here?
3: This feels like a softball. <laughs> um, I, you know, my, my earlier comment had been that I think that we can learn a lot from the mixed division, uh, and I still stand by that comment. Uh, I stand by it because I think that when you start to create dynamics that force issues to be at the forefront, race is harder, right? Race is more insidious. Um, and, and in the United States in particular, you, know, you don't have like the clear jerk uh, as sometimes you do with gender. Uh, the disparity is much more easy to identify. With, with racial undertones, it's so much more at the minutia level. And it's so much more micro that it's actually harder in some ways to have those conversations. And one of the beautiful things about being in the mixed division is that I think that the notion of gender actually acts as a really nice stepping stone to the other conversations. Because if you can have, in some ways, I call gender sort of the low-lying fruit in having those conversations. uh, It's it's much easier to identify. It's much easier to find allies because it's 50-50. You know, one woman says X and the other three go, or other four or seven on the team go, yes. Um, you know, it, it's quite different from race, but um, I do think though it's a phenomenal stepping stone because if you can start to get the norms of how we engage in these conversations, of how do we meet people in the middle, of how do we create space spaces for communication, I think then you can start to tackle some of the harder stuff. In the single gender realm, Because you don't have that stepping stone, I actually think the the transition into some of the harder conversations becomes more challenging, especially when it comes to gender identity and race um, in the single gender divisions, because you don't have the natural stepping stone and you're not as practiced in how we have hard conversations. I think the mixed division naturally leads itself to have to have hard conversations. And because of that, you start to get better at it. Everyone has to practice at these things. Like there's no point where you wake up, like I said, and you're like, I'm an expert, I've read everything. It's truly trial and error and and falling on your face and getting back up and trying again and having having the earnestness to say, I can do better tomorrow and having the compassion to say, you can do better tomorrow. Um, We are much more forgiving in the context of gender in those conversations. Um, And that's why I said, I think the mixed division lends itself to being better at then saying, okay, what's next? What's next? And what's next? Um, It's not to say that single genders can't, but I think that there has to be an acknowledgement of like there is a normalization already there and then trying to create distinction where everyone else is the same is harder. On the mixed division, because you are inherently starting at different positions, it's much easier to be like, ah, I see that we're starting at different positions Okay. And we had to then try to address this. Like I said, what comes next? What is the next step? Um, so yeah, this is a softball to me. Uh, I've, I've always loved the mixed division for this reason. It's, it's one of the reasons I um, dabbled constantly while I played in my, my career. Probably should have spent more time in the mixed division, if you ask me. But even now, at the tournament I was at two weeks ago, I played in the mixed division and I loved it. I, I think that there's a joy in interacting with um, folks whose lived experiences are not like your own, and figuring out how do we treat each other with respect and with empathy and in compassion and, and most importantly with joy, because that's what you're there to do. You're out there to have fun. Like this is a hobby. For the most part, we don't get paid for it. We're trying to change that, but for the most part, we don't get paid for this. So why shouldn't this be something that gives you joy? And I think you get joy from having authentic interactions with people who don't look like you and have not lived experiences like you, and you learn from. That brings joy in our lives and and i want more of that
0: i find that really interesting as well because i think there are definitely like pros and cons to mixed and, and single gender um in india we've almost exclusively played mixed um which i think was great in the beginning but we really feel the need for single gender now and what's also interesting is we had a guest rasika who had come on the podcast and how she talked about in mixed because uh, she, she identifies, her pronoun is she as well, and but she identifies as um, non-binary. And in Mixed, always felt like she was being tagged. You know, you have to call women on the line. So we're she, she, she calling her a woman almost. But in single gender, there was no, you don't have to do that. You don't have to call genders. And so it just felt like more of a comfortable space. And so I think that, but I completely agree with you that Mixed is, is my favorite format and it has all these pros and cons and the diversity of it pushes us to work harder and think about what we can do better. That definitely makes
3: sense. I mean, again, it's both, right? Neither perspective is incorrect, because mm. I think that, that the perspective that is, is offered is, is again, if when you put the single gender together, there's an ability to have a commonality of language. You, you hear this even in the spaces i created with people of color. It's a different commonality of language, and it is fundamentally different than when we play in the context of with our white counterparts. And, and, and the same is true in gender. I'm not here to deny that gender doesn't play a huge role in how we identify ourselves and how we have our lived experiences and the trauma it often causes uh, for women. But, and so there's something about, there's a solace in seeking refuge in spaces where that's not at the forefront of your interactions, right? Because you're correct, in mixed, you're defined by the opposition. And that's challenging. In single gender, you're no longer, or even the same goes under non-binary, you're no longer addressed by this one level of your identity. Mm. And then you can see why on the single gender spaces, they're ecstatic to be there because they don't have to have that conversation. It removes that from the 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 baseline of what we discuss. As I said, the challenge, however, the trade-off is you're not as practiced to get to the harder things. Um, So. I'm not here to, 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 I actually think that that's an absolutely true statement. Both can be true. And that's the beauty of these things is Mm -hmm. both can be true. Um, To say one thing doesn't to take away from another pros and cons are exactly that it's never zero sum. Um, And I think part of the challenge in having these conversations is to understand and accept it doesn't have to be zero sum. We're not here to rank mixed above single gender. We're here to talk about pros and cons.
0: Uh, before we, uh, we we kind of have some questions around like your kind of high level playing experience, but Nandan, I just wanted to check if you had any follow-up to that or?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, this is definitely interesting, uh, right? Uh, having mixed as a competition format. I was just maybe wondering, do you see um, ultimate, a mixed ultimate being played at a professional level anytime soon? What are your thoughts on that? Um,
3: you know, it, it is it is true that mixed is uh, the mixed the concept of mixed gender in sports is in many ways right now an outlier. Um, and in many ways, you know, this sort of leads to the other question of: Is that the end for the Olympics? Is it precisely because of its uh, uniqueness that then gives it a, a leg up into a space like the Olympics? Can that uh, succeed in a in a professional format? That's a phenomenal question. Um, And and, and I think that has to do with your audience base. Like right now you have single genders really truly struggling to create an audience base um, and to draw people into the sport. There is something to be said of what if we had just started with mixed? In fact, this was the original discussion around the AUDL was should the AUDL start as a mixed league precisely because it is nothing that the market has ever seen before. Now, for better or worse, the, the, the dynamics of capitalism and the dynamics of how funding works in the United States, we, they went men's. Um, it's a, it's, it was a response to a market. The question is, do you create the market for mixed? Um, and, that's, and that's a challenge. And you just quite, we don't quite know, right? Because we don't have a model exactly. You know, There's a few Olympic sports that play cross gender tennis. Is, it has really started to kind of lean in. You know, I, the announcement today is Barty and Djokovic are going to play together at the Olympics. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that That's really starting to move in that direction. But I can understand, I'm not saying I agree, but I understand why the thought process was here in the United States. Let's start with a model that is consistent and familiar to our audience space, which is single gender, before we move into mix. It's not to say that there wasn't a place to think, maybe we should have started with mixed just precisely because no one would have ever seen it coming because they have it. Uh, and that's kind of the unique and exciting thing about it. And, and it's hard to say without, you know, baselines. could it have succeeded? You know, maybe that's the question you want to ask. Could that have succeeded?
2: And I feel like it, it. It. There is some scope. Uh, of course, like you said, there is a question of grooming the market and preparing them for something like that. Maybe that's that's the thing, and well, I'm sure we'll find out pretty soon about this. I'm hoping we find out best.
3: And it, you know that the beauty of it of, of being at the forefront of a sport that's really only forty years old is we do create the narrative, right? Mm-hmm. We get to yeah. decide what that narrative looks like. Um, even the introduction of the mixed division in the the United States was an anomaly. Right now, there's been discussions of whether they should introduce it at the college level. And that discussion has been ongoing for about six years. Um, It's started to take shape, but it hasn't quite taken hold. Um, And and it's not, I think, for the lack of interest. I think it's just right now, we've just so entrenched in our single divisions that it's hard for people to then add something else. So I, I don't think it's a fault per se of the concept. I think it's, it's just sort of the, the response to the current scenarios and situations that we're in. But you're right, how fun. I mean, the United, uh, sorry, Australia has already experimented with this. We know that Australia started a pro league last year, 2019, if I'm not mistaken, with a mixed pro league. So it's yeah. not to say that people aren't thinking about this and trying it, it's clearly being tried. And that's the beautiful thing about being at this level of the sport where we are really reinventing or not reinventing, inventing what comes next. Because we don't have a guidebook. We don't have a plan, per se. We're making it up. Um, And that's really fun and exciting. And and I really, maybe let's bring on an Australian pro player next time to talk about what that experience is like. Because the model does exist.
1: So uh, talking about the different types of ultimate we can play, uh, what do you feel are the best competition structures uh, to promote the best kind of ultimate in different spaces. We've spoken about how um, the size of a country can lead, can be challenging, but also lead to different formats coming up in different areas. But uh, basically what do you feel are the kinds of structures that can help ultimate grow in its best version?
3: Yeah, uh, I mean, I have I've never been shy about uh, articulating that the USA format of tournaments, which is three, four, five games in one day is not particularly player friendly. Um, It requires a different type of endurance that, frankly, to me, is unprecedented in the realm of sports. Um, We we again, we just don't have a model for it, but but I understood the rationality behind the decision of tournament formats. Where we have a country that is as large as we are, and it takes a six hour flight from, to get from one end to the other, the, to ensure that you can uh, obtain sufficient opportunities to play cross country, um, meant that you had to find common ground and bring everyone to a singular location and have them play each other in a single chance rather than playing one offs. It, it is a reality of money and time Um, and practicality that we've created this tournament format. The the challenge, of course, the trade-off has been money, time, and practicality for local players. Do you have the money to get on a plane for me to take a four-hour flight over the course of a weekend? Do I have the time to be able to take Friday off? Because that's what's required for the travel to go from West Coast to East Coast um, to make sure that I can be Healthy and at least somewhat awake by the time I'm competing on Saturday. And again, the practicality of, can I do this repeatedly for three, four times in the course of three months uh, or four months? Um, The the trade-off, and these are the pros and cons I think any tournament organizer or national organizer needs to ask of, well, on the one hand, you want to bring competition together. On the other hand, what are you actually doing at the growth of the sport? right? Because if you cannot meet the thresholds of money, time, and practicality, you don't compete. And if you don't compete, we're not bringing in new people into the sport. And if your goal is growth, then I strongly believe that the the competition structure should be local. It should be as accessible as possible, because then you start to then decrease the questions of time and money. It's still a factor, but not as large of a factor um practicalities of weekends is still a factor not everyone works a Monday through Friday job and we have to acknowledge that Um, and for some that 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 means that they're ineligible or unable to compete Um, you know again in some ways you're never going to create a perfect system and you kind of have to sort of satisfy the masses the best you can that's just the reality of organizing of like, I can only make so many people happy and if this is the majority, I'll make the majority happy. It still doesn't mean you don't ask these questions, right? Because if you don't ask these questions and simply ask what serves the majority, especially in a place like the United States that serves rich white males, that's it. That's what it serves. Um, And so the necessity of having this conversation is so imperative because if you don't want your sport to be rich white males, then you have to ask yourself, how do I change the structure? How do I make the structure more welcoming? How do I ensure the growth of this sport in spaces and places where this sport has not yet reached, which is often inner city? It's often lower socioeconomic status. Um, You know, one of the beautiful things about thinking about the growth of the sport in, in India, right? Like it was so much of like you talk about where Chennai and beach, like, you know, like the accessibility of being able to play beach, the fact that you could play at any time, really, truly, you were not limited to weekends to be able to play. You really started to address time, money, and practicality. And as a result, you saw a boom so fast in India. We, India really, truly, in my, in my eyes, my outsider eyes, went zero to 60 in sort of the growth of this sport. We went from India wants to play. India's competing in a world championship, like two years later. Um, and, and, and we have to ask, how does that happen? And that happens through access. It happens to introducing the sp- people to the sport in a way that they can meet the sport. And of course, because they're going to love it, continue to succeed in the sport. The United States, I feel, has moved away from that model. Um, and as a result, has hurt its ability to really start to expand. The- this model in the United States started as an elite Ivy League sport. So and has retained a lot of those roots even today. Um, and I'd love to see that change.
0: Yeah, that's nail on the head, multiple points, particularly about Chennai, and then India finishing fifth at uh, Royan WCBU. Um, yeah, really good point. And I, I love that you broke it down into those three main points, money, practicality, time. Like, that's that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting, right? Like, the USA, if you feel like it's moved away from that, and so, like, what does growth look like? And it, of course, you still have, like, the summer leagues, winter leagues, and you know, Buddha, Beta, and like these organizations that try to promote it, but is it where a bulk of the money is going or the energy and focus?
3: Let's also be clear though. That's not where the sport started. Like, again, let's be clear. The sport started in an elite Ivy university. The fact that we've brought in youth is the response to growth. Mm. It's not actually the intent of the sport. So when I suggest that we perhaps need to examine our priorities. We actually need to go back to the roots. The roots never actually were serving growth. It wasn't serving youth. It wasn't serving inner city kids. It was serving a very, very specific demographic. Um, And the response of organizations like Booyah, Bata or any of these youth orgs is the offshoot of saying, well, we have to grow this sport. Where's the natural place? It it clearly is is youth. but, but that, that's the response. That's, that's like version 2.0. And, and, and don't get me wrong, you know, part of my, my biography is that I, I joined Barrier Disc uh, really when we were just starting the youth division. Uh, Barrier Disc previously really was a conglomeration of, of adult tournament directors, adult rec tournament directors. Um, and, and really, you know as you can imagine, consolidating resources and consolidating costs was a very efficient way to start to help run these leagues that were really, for us geographically, uh, spread out over the, about a 50 mile radius. Um, but in 2011, uh, when I joined Barry Disc, which I think is right, um, there was a question of, can we start attracting youth players? And, and what was cool about that is that, you know, we didn't have what we have now, which is a lot of second generation players. Like One of the fun things at the sport in the United States is you have parents playing with their kids, Um, And and I got to tell you that that is that's a phenomenal experience to witness, uh, mainly because of how much smack talk there is. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, um, But um, what was so interesting about being on the board at that time um, was the narrative that we were trying to create sort of the cyclical of like, once you join the sport, you're in it forever. Uh, and, and, I, and I will tell you and Barry just will tell you that I, I really resisted that. I said, you know what? People can enter the sport when they want to enter the mm. sport. Rec players aren't necessarily going to be lifelong players. They aren't necessarily going to have their kids join the sport. They may, but they don't have to. And, and part of the messaging we were having when we were starting to introduce youth sports into uh, the barrier sphere is we wanted the rec teams to help support it. And, and, and that was a struggle. And, and I understood precisely why. If you're a rec player and you are just looking, rightfully so, I need something to do on a website, I want to be able to go to a bar afterwards, and your mentality isn't about, I'm going to be in this for the next 40 years, and my children are going to play this sport. You're really just thinking about, I would like a chance to meet people and hang out. And what I was uh, articulating when Barrier Disc was really trying to to brand itself, which is Mm. uh, you have to brand yourself as both a youth organization and a rec organization, not a rec to youth organization or a youth to rec organization because that pipeline doesn't necessarily exist yet. And creating that without actually having that pipeline is gonna be a challenge. Um, it's something I've also talked with USAU about. You know, that There are so many groups it's trying to service and those groups have very fundamentally different needs. Club players have different needs than college players. Yes, some college players go to club, but that's not always the case. Um, then they have a youth division. Uh, now it's getting to point where most youth players do go to college, um, but it isn't always the case. And, and for some youth is something that they wanna do as part and parcel of their exploration of what they wanna be as an adult and what sports they wanna do. But um, I, I think that, that in the United States, Um, Something that I've I've asked us to push away from is creating a narrative that right now doesn't exist simply because you want that narrative to be true. Um, And I think that countries thinking about how they're gonna grow the sport, uh, whether it's India, whether it's Japan, whether it's the Netherlands, um, have to be comfortable with the idea that you can serve different demographics and meet them at different places, and that is okay. Now, do you want a single organization to do that? Maybe, Uh, and for smaller countries that might be easier. In places like the United States, I think we're struggling um, to have a singular organization serve all of these different demographics in the ways they need to be served. Um, But that's a larger question of of organizational capacity and, and more importantly, a vision for organizations. I I see why organizations want to kind of like be the hand, like the little puppeteer master, you know, for everything ultimate. But I think it's actually very okay, because the sport is so new, to let sort of offshoots cultivate as they want to naturally cultivate. You might have from the, those who come to PEACH, people who say, I wanna create a national team. And you might have those who come to Beach saying, I just like doing this on a Thursday and that's okay. Mm. So we can create different spaces for them and both can have their needs met um, without feeling like one has to sacrifice for the other.
0: Amazing, some great food for thought, even like national federation presidents. Like listening to this would be like getting get a lot of value out of this.
2: I think we went over this a little earlier about how um, mixed ultimate might be the proposition for ultimate to be at the Olympics. Right, okay. the reason why ultimate is at the Olympics is at the big stage. Now I was wondering, uh, what what do you think the impact of something like that can be on the sport? Like, uh, what can how can uh, the Olympics? How do you see the Olympics impacting ultimate? At the world stage, and the others, the other way too. How is do you think ultimate can have an impact on other sports being at a large stage, and uh, at a stage like the Olympics, is there is there a larger uh, story is there? Is there something that uh, can uh, affect a lot more sports in the way organized sports is looked at?
3: Yeah, there's so many facets to that question. So I'm gonna go one at a time, the best I can. Um, first of all, I don't know if you have access to the ringer, uh, but an article came out, I think last week of how Ultimate Frisbee could be, become an Olympic sport. And there's a lot of been discussion on that article. Um, and and to, to be very practical and, and, and kind of the nitty gritty dirty part of this, being part of the Olympics is money. It's accessibility to so much funding that we do not currently have access to. That, that is a reality of the sport, um, and I don't think we get to hide behind the curtain of pretending that that's not important. It is definitely important to the United States, the funding that comes with being part of the Olympics. Um, now, how that manifests itself and the realities of how we have this discussion, I still think has to be addressed, um, because there's certainly, like, there's a, there's a beauty to the Olympics, right? The Olympics right now is such a hot-button topic. You know, as a concept, it's a beautiful thing. As a practicality, it's kind of an aberration, and, 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 and not even aberration, it, it's, it's an atrocity. You know. If you think about the amount of money um, that has been going in to these things that do not benefit either the host country, the people of the host country, the athletes even per se, um, but really coffers that are in the hands of a lot of it advertisers, in that regard, the Olympics rightfully so needs to be criticized. You know, there's obviously a secondary question of the Olympics in in litigating or mitigating or policing um, political speech, which has always been a hot button subject. And and I'm not here to comment on the right or wrong of it. But, you know, as we moved away from just sort of the concept of, I want the best athletes in this sport to compete against each other to what we see today, it's actually hard to almost see the connection. You know, like even today watching the gymnastics, um, women's uh, gymnastics and, and to watch them compete in an empty stadium um, with their families on the other side of the world, it, it, it feels surreal in some ways. And yet we are witnessing, truly witnessing the best and brightest in the world compete. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I hesitate to, to, to lean in and say like, Olympics are bust, I think that there are rightful conversations that have to happen about how the Olympics perhaps has moved away from the ethos, mm. which is celebrating sport, celebrating feats of athleticism and greatness and the uniqueness that comes from watching people compete at the highest level and, 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 and not even compete, but exceed the boundaries of what we think is possible you know, every world record that we see at the Olympics, whether it's in track, whether it's in swimming, whether it's uh, in, in any other sport, I mean, it's just a feat of human amazing, of, of human capacity. And there's a joy and a beauty in that. And yet we have the Olympics, which almost feels like it's pulling away. From, it's, it's almost denigrating this beautiful moment in an individual's achievement and, and, and profiteering off of it, and, and this isn't to say that, like I said, the concept of the Olympics is beautiful. It really is. Um, I think the IOC needs to really have a hard reflection on how it might have lost its way
0: yeah.
3: in this context. And, and so for that reason, to me, you know, my greatest joy in my career has been competing at world championships in my sport. It's not the Olympics. But I got to do exactly what the Olympians did, which is exceed and challenge the boundaries of what excellence can look like. And I got to do that multiple times in my career. And I don't want to take away from that. Will that be different if we're in the Olympics? Maybe, but, but the experience of the athlete I don't think is going to be different. The money is going to look different. The training is going to look different. But, but the, what it feels like to, to win gold, what it feels like to compete for seven days, <laughs> and 10 12 games over seven days you don't you don't that doesn't that's never going to change whether you're in the olympics or not um and so I, I think it's great to have hard conversations i think it's great to ask the questions of is the means serving the ends or is the end serving the means well, actually the former um but um certainly i do think it will change the sport Uh, It'll change the sport precisely because, like I said, it adds money to the conversation. And whenever you add money to a conversation, it fundamentally changes how we do things. It becomes less about joy and more about monetization. Mm. Um, And I I want our sport to resist as much as it can, feeling like it has to commodify itself, which means by commodifying itself, it means it has to make sacrifices from the very things that perhaps makes it great. Now. The second part of your question, which is now a larger philosophical question, is like how is having Frisbee in the Olympics different? It's obviously different because it's self-officiated. Mm. Can self-officiation work in the Olympics? That's a great question. You know, We ask this question a lot at the, na- at the international level. Um, we even ask this question at the national level, at national championships. Can self-officiation work? When the stakes get higher, can self-officiation work? When money is involved, can self-officiation work? Your incentive base changes. Right now when you play for joy and you play for, because you're paying money, you know, it's much easier to let a call go. It's much easier not to play tiki tacky. When your stakes are higher, if you're worried about sponsorship money, if you're worried about, um, honestly, sponsorship's the biggest thing. Uh, if you're worried about who who's going to, um, cater to you later, um, or if you have someone that you're supposed to serve, your decision-making process, even in those moments, is going to look different. Um, And I think that's the reality of the psychology of it. I don't know how you divorce one from the other. Um, And I think I said, I think it's a worthwhile conversation to have. I'm not offering answers, and I'm deliberately not doing that. I'm just posing problems, which is sometimes a fault of mine. but even when we have these things, like I said, I don't want to take away the concept of competing at the highest level, at the highest stage is still something I'm going to tell you is, is going to be the things I remember most in my career. Because I, I got there and, and it, was, it was such a, it was such a ride. Um, and I, I want more of that for more athletes. I want athletes to experience that. I want athletes to want to strive for that. I want athletes to believe they can get there um does it have to be the olympics i don't
2: know so uh, i've some fan questions the first one comes from uh munish a uh, friend of the podcast uh, from san jose spiders captain of the san jose spiders he asks what is your goal for long-term growth of the sport ultimate in olympics leagues?"
3: You know, I think that it's so funny because like I've just bagged on the Olympics, so <laughs> perhaps it's not the greatest follow-up question. Um, you know, to me, that the goal is growth. That is my first and foremost goal, especially as someone at this point who's clearly at the end of her career. Um, I care about what comes next greatly. And to me, that's access points. To me, that is ensuring that we continue to expand the base in which this sport is played. Um, especially in the United States, like I said, I think it's very different for other countries. I can only speak from sort of a United States perspective right now. Um, I I care about um, seeing about more high school players playing. I I think it's such a crazy thing to witness that I have uh, players who are 18, 19 who can legitimately look me in the eye and say, I played for seven years. And to think in my head, I was 30 (laughs) when I got to seven or whatever it was, you know? that, that's a, such an exciting thing, and, and it's exciting to see what can happen if you have more time, especially in very formidable years, to be able to develop the skill sets for the sport. And what does that mean? I mean, again, you brought up the Cardenas sisters. I mean, in many ways, they, they are setting a, a standard bearer for what does it mean to start as a junior player and grow up into this sport and find yourself at the top of the sport at a very young age. Um, and precisely because you just had the years, you know, when, when I started most, the entry point for most players was 18, 19 years old and it took us seven years. And in many ways, the discussion about where your prime is, your prime is some people say early twenties, some people say late twenties. Most people tell you after 30, you're SOL, but, um, but if, if you're, if you prime is 30 and your entry point is 13, how much time do you have to get to that prime? how much excellence can you achieve in that amount of time versus if your entry point is in the 18 and your prime is 30? You know, the, the, the scalability of, of, of awareness, of acumen, of, of just sort of field knowledge is so high, much higher when you bring that entry and you, when you lower that entry point into that sport. And so to me right now, especially with what I am doing with, with focusing on youth That's an incredibly exciting aspect to me, because I want an 18 year old where I was like, at my prime, I couldn't do what you did. I want to be able to say that I want to look at someone in the eye and say that. Uh, And that's going to be so exciting for me um, as we move forward. You know, the pro leagues, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm clearly invested in it. I own one of the teams. Um, So as a concept, I want to see pro succeed. Because like I said, I still genuinely believe that creating a model that demonstrates where you can go if you're starting at 13 is just as important because you cannot give them vision of how they can succeed and where they can end up without a pro at the other end. So to me, that was why I wanted to balance, counterbalance with my my focus, my energy, my money at these end, the entry point and not the exit point, but sort of the the ceiling, our current ceiling. And I wanna see what that ceiling looks like. And we just don't know yet what that ceiling looks like. And like I said, that's a different question than the Olympics. Um, that can be a ceiling, um, but you know, there, there's a question of, of, is that sustainable as a ceiling? And we, we, like I said, we don't know. And then one of the beautiful things is we get to try and figure that out together
0: um but yeah before you answered this question i was was thinking more or less along the same lines that in india we've got around 20 to 25 colleges that play but there's not a structured approach to getting high schools to play so i think the key i yeah just like what you said like the key to growth is getting younger and younger people to start playing and that age just decreases as much if we can get kind of motor skills being built at the age of five and six that's amazing right by the time they get to high school and they're going to be very athletic cutters and um, sports people. And that's kind of missing, sp- particularly for the female uh, population. That I feel like that's really missing. Like, we're not promoting sports enough amongst the female population until they get the opportunity to do so, they have the money to do so, or the freedom to do so. Um, and so, yeah, I completely agree. It's, a lot of it is just to do with the age at which people start the sport, and that's going to end up uh, growing the base I this ball overall as well.
2: I have another one from uh, Shrikant from Song Chasers in Mumbai and Cleveland University. Shrikant asks, how can coaches enable safe spaces for minority genders to engage in a dialogue or raise concerns?
3: Yeah, this is such a hard question to answer precisely because I, I would never profess to give the answer. Um, I can only profess to say what I've been doing uh, and how I've been trying. Um, You know, dynamics in power and in perceptions of power um, permeate both in how we perceive ourselves and how we receive others. And, you know, the first step is acknowledging it exists, right? Um, You can't, engage in solving a problem without acknowledging that a problem actually exists. Um, and so a lot of discussions, to me, start with coming at the table of, especially if you're in the majority, of acknowledging you don't necessarily have the lived experience of the minority. And if you're in the minority, something with the I would like to teach, I'd like to explain. Um, you know, We have so much discussions here in the United States. Is it our burden? You know, is it our responsibility to explain to you what this is it our responsibility to teach you these things. And, and I, I understand that. I, I do understand the question of, of asking those who already lived experiences are challenging to bring more to the table. I do. But I also believe that asking us to meet in the middle, and I've used this analogy a lot, does matter. I engage better with someone who genuinely wants to hear what I want to say. You know, Listening skills are so important. Um, I engage better. I feel more comfortable in speaking to someone who doesn't respond defensively or, you know, offers the what abouts, what about is what we hear and, and offers those non sequiturs. Well, you're here and you're successful. So how is it affecting women? You know, like you get these like non sequitur responses and it really shuts down conversation. But if you can engage in a way that is earnest and receptive and non-defensive, you are halfway to having the conversation. Then the second component is doing something about it. That's where a lot of people struggle. They can do step one, and they can say, I hear you, and then change nothing. <laughs> step two is actually giving up privilege. It's, it's, it's being willing to share what you have. It's being willing to take on more than you've previously taken on, not because um, and, and no, actually, because you know they've already carried it. It's saying, I see you carrying two mules on your back. I'll carry one now. You're going to still have to carry yours, but I'll carry one now. And and that's the second step. And that's where I think right now, societally, we are struggling. We're very good at calling people out and being like, well, that's not kosher. That's not woke. And they want to tell you what woke is. But they don't want to do what woke is, which is actually making sacrifices. That's step two, um, and I and I want us to be cognizant that it's not enough. This journey isn't finished. You know, like the, the best cartoon I've ever seen is like sort of like this mountain, and it sort of looks like this, and you see this person being like, <gasps> and the other guy being like, that's just step one. We still gotta go, <laughs> um, and that that that's that's the that's the next step. Um, I'm, i appreciative that we've moved the needle forward. The reality is the needle needs to keep moving forward. Um, and again, you start with the earnestness and, and, and baseline of I'll engage in conversation. I will listen. I'll be willing to change my mind. Second thing, I will do something about it. Um, and that's what I, that's what I want now. That's what I'm asking right now in the spaces I'm in is it's not enough to say, you hear me do something.
0: Yeah, we are. We are. I mean, we've used a lot of time as well. But I'm kind of. I'm. I'm actually still excited about doing the rapid fire questions. So I think we should do them and let's see if we can make it into the episode or not. Anyway, because it's a fun process whether we get to include it or not. Um, is that okay? Yeah. Awesome. Um, just to, I think you get the idea, but it's, it's supposed to be, you don't know what the questions are and instinctive, like give us your first answer. And that we know, assume that to be the, the most honest answer. And, uh, we try to keep it fun. There's some that are, might push you a bit more as well. So good to go. All right. Uh, first question is mixed or single gender. Uh, Oh, no. instinct. you have to pick one. Mixed. Mixed. Okay, cool. Um, I hope you know these people. Amitabh Bachchan or Rajnikant. Amitabh Bachchan. Okay. Layout D or Huck? Layout D. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Forehand or backhand? Forehand. Coaching or playing ultimate? Coaching. Right. Yeah. Okay. This is a, you might need time, but which country do you feel is going to come up big in the next few years? It's, it's
3: unfair to say Colombia because in some ways, Colombia has already reached that pinnacle. Um, but if I were to say what comes next, Australia. Mm. Yep. They've just been on the outside looking in and uh, I think they're high time for a title. I know Italy is obviously making a big run right now as well. Um, I think other European countries. Right now, I think the talent is so diluted in Europe um, mm. that it's difficult for them to sustain. Um, I think because, you know, Australia is an island (laughs) and Colombia is sort of just on its own. Um, They get to consolidate talent better.
0: Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, Would you come to India to coach? Yeah. Cool. Um, What do you think about stats from a coaching perspective?
3: I love stats. I think (laughs) stats is a way to communicate with players in a way that often is something that they can receive. Not all players are receptive to it, but I do think it's a tangibility that offers... Some context, more than you should have cut this way.
0: Yeah, it's like evidence. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Um, I think I know this, but how many championships did you win? What's the number?
3: Uh, five national titles, three world titles. Wow. And then a bunch of silvers.
0: Yeah, right.
3: Silvers count. Just Absolutely.
0: So you know. Yes, making to the finals <laughs> is like yeah. Can come down to a penalty shootout if you're in the wrong sport fantastic that's it that was it made it to the end hope that was okay
3: that's great
0: <laughs> awesome starting um... with the
3: hardest question <laughs> makes you single gender i was like
0: <laughs> you did you did pause for a while
3: <laughs> i did i did
0: yeah. um so we're done thanks so much manisha um fantastic Uh, interview I I love how much you shared with us I mean I think we had the privilege of doing this before as a preparation but even more came out and really really enjoyed having you with us Um, it's hard to put it into words how much we appreciate you being on the podcast
3: thank you I said it's it's a privilege to be here truly like it 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 (laughs) has been such a fun uh you know as I said to you when we saw each other last my I told my family I told my cousin hey I want to get interviewed they're like, really? You're a big deal? And I was like, I guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, um, I those people know that.
3: <laughs> well, it, it, but in all seriousness, I uh, it's funny because I feel like you were disappointed I didn't say India. Um, <laughs> I, I have a great deal of, of excitement for where I think India can go. I think right now COVID, I think, has really hurt the development of Indian sports. And I think in a way that I think is harder than other countries. Mm. Um, and I think that uh, it's going to take two years perhaps to recover because I think you just had such a strong core that's slowly aging older. And the like I said, growth of the sport is so imperative. And other countries have done, have already had systems in place for for that youth development. Um, and and I'm, I'm not saying this to be dismissive, but I think that that's what we're going to see. And for a lot of countries that don't have great youth programs right now, it's going to take a while to get back.
0: Absolutely. Um, so, Nandan, anything to close out?
2: I it was just an absolute honor to be here uh, uh, getting your perspective on things. It was like, truly a wealth uh, a of knowledge. It was it was really really interesting to see all the different perspectives you had, and from from your experience, it was just amazing amazing listening to, listening to you. Thank you so Thank you. much.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having
1: me. Yep. Yeah. It was like probably the best way to start my day. Uh, it was lovely to see your perspectives. It, it's given you, you know, given us so much to think about. Um, a lot of very interesting things to take up wherever we're working right now. A lot of, uh, you know, food for thought, things to do. So great start to the day. Thank you so much.
3: Well, thank you. Like I said, I I care deeply about how we develop the sport, and and to the extent that. There are lessons that you can take from the united states i want you to have it there's no reason to reinvent the wheel on this uh make a better one and and then then take the sport to the next level and that's what's going to be so exciting to see what happens next
0: and i'm definitely going to hold you to the would you come to india to coach so that's that's great that's going to happen okay yeah <laughs> um yep thanks thanks everyone for tuning in watching this video cast and or listening to the podcast you can reach out to us um for any feedback or suggestions or appreciations at uh the email address contact at the rate 91ultimate.com otherwise this is goodbye from all of us we're going to wave off goodbye and hang up thanks everyone you